Welcome to the Mindfulness Medic Podcast, where we embark on a transformative journey of the mind, body, and soul. This is not just another podcast. It's a sanctuary of wisdom, resilience, and growth. In a world that never stops, we pause here. We dive deep into the inner workings of the human experience, exploring the profound, the practical, and the profoundly practical. Join me as I uncover the secrets to unlocking your potential, embracing mindfulness, and living life with intention. From the power of presence to the art of purpose, this podcast is your compass on the path to self-mastery. Prepare to be inspired, challenged, and enlightened. It's time to awaken your inner healer, your true warrior. Welcome to the Mindfulness Medic Podcast. Your journey starts now. Today, we're going to talk about first responder mental health. First responder mental health, that's a pretty hot topic. It's got quite the stigma attached to it, actually. In my opinion, we don't do a very good job in our community in promoting positive mental health and promoting positive methods and tools in which to make ourselves stronger and more resilient and more reliable. Because the fact remains, we have been brought up in a culture, in healthcare, in public safety, as first responders to be these unmovable, stoic type warriors, where we don't talk about our feelings, we don't speak about the things that are affecting us, we don't open up our hearts and our souls to people, we're not vulnerable, we have this unspoken agreement that we will bear that cross and we will bear the pain and that we will carry on doing our job as quiet professionals. You see, when you spend long enough in this career, it's almost inevitable that you're going to be affected by the things you experience at some point. And I know early in my career, when I first got into EMS and I start, started working at the 911 system, where I really started to get my feet wet with the high acuity stuff, I thought that I was invincible. I thought that that stuff wasn't going to ever affect me. That the post-traumatic stress or all of those mental health problems, the anxieties, that darkness, the depression from the experiences of the job, that all that stuff, that was just for other people. That wasn't, that wasn't going to be me. And I, I believed that for so long. I even believed that through going through multiple tough calls. But then it did catch up to me. Then it didn't knock on the front door one day and just appear and say, hey, I'm here. It was a slow, insidious progression of negative stuff in my life. It started out just with short-temperedness, with not being able to focus, with losing my deeper connection with my wife and it was manifesting its way 
into other aspects of my life where I didn't initially recognize that it was actually originating from traumatic events on the job. I was becoming increasingly short-tempered. I would get in fights with, with my wife. We had a newborn baby at the time, and I wasn't as present as I should have been. I was very distracted. I was not a good husband or a father at that time. And it was one call in particular that really kind of sealed the fate for me as far as recognizing that I was not going to, in fact, be infallible to the traumatic events and that I was actually going to need to get some help. That call involved a suicide. It was a police officer who was up with his family on vacation at a lake house in one of the towns that we covered with the hospital-based EMS system that I worked for at the time. And I remember the call like it was yesterday. I can replay the events in my head like it was yesterday, just like anyone else listening to this can remember and recall those certain events they've been involved with that are just as visceral and real today as they were when they happened. Well, this call came in as a GSW to the head. So obviously those words right off the bat get your sympathetic nervous system kicking into overdrive. You start thinking of all sorts of treatment modalities and clinical courses and you go into paramedic mode. At the time, I was an advanced EMT. As we're driving there, dispatch updates that it was self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, CPR in progress, patient still breathing. Okay. Things are getting real. So we arrive, it's on a uh, the dock, the, a dock that goes out to the lake, and I remember it again, just like it was yesterday. The moon was like a full moon, it was reflecting off the lake, it was a very still lake, it was a very serene, picturesque scene, actually. It was during the fall, so... It had that brisk autumn air mixed with the colorful leaves and the moon glistening off the lake. And then you look down onto the dock and see a lifeless body with other people standing around performing CPR. The wife of the husband was walking out of the lake because she had jumped into the lake to grab his body and bring him up onto the dock. Because he went out to the end of the dock and shot himself with a service pistol, falling into the water. So to make a long story short, I won't go through all the other gory details of the call and all the treatment modalities that were performed, but it was one of the higher acuity and more intense calls of my career. He ended up being in a shockable rhythm at the time, so he was transported to the hospital. The one part that sticks out to me to this day, and it still haunts me to this day, are when we, I, was, I was loading him into the back of the ambulance, and I was lifting up the stretcher to raise the wheels on the stretcher, the, the little son of the 
the officer who shot himself comes around to the back of the ambulance and he looks at me and he looks me in the eyes and he asks, is daddy going to be okay? What do you say in that situation? I didn't know what to say, so I just looked right through him. Transported him to the hospital, and eventually the physician at the hospital terminated the resuscitative efforts. It was going to be futile at that point. And the aspect about the hospital-based EMS system that I worked for is we would transport patients into the ER, and we would have the opportunity to continue the clinical care of that patient or you know, help the nurses and the physicians in the care of that patient. So we would actually see the back end of that, of that clinical course when usually, traditionally in EMS, you drop a patient off at the hospital, at the ER, and you, you leave without really knowing what goes on. But in this case, since we worked in the hospital, we were part of the resuscitation. And the wife came, come, but comes back to the ER, and she's given the news by the doctor. The standard death notification that everyone in healthcare is used to at this point, where you just have to be blunt and honest and direct and tell the individual receiving the news exactly what has transpired and that their loved one is dead and there's nothing else we can do. One of the other sounds that haunts me to this day is the guttural heart wretching moan and scream that a loved one makes when they find out that their other loved one has passed away. I've heard that sound many times in my career and it's still a sound to this day that I don't think I'll ever get used to. When people ask me, what's the worst part of your job? <laughs> I always get a kick out of that question. Because most people expect you to answer with some war story, with some blood and guts and gore and glory and twisted metal of cars or buildings on fire and people hanging out windows or some crazy clinical scenario where there's just blood everywhere and you're knee deep in a resuscitation. But honestly, my answer goes a lot deeper than that. The worst part of this job, in my opinion, is watching the hope being taken out of another person's eyes, out of their essence, when they're told that their loved one, their husband, their wife, their son, their daughter, their brother, their sister, when they're told that their loved one is gone and there's nothing else we can do. Because we're all familiar with that hope. We've all felt that hope before in our lives where we are hedging all of our faith and all of our hope on this idea that it might just work out, that God might just grace us with that bit of luck that 
we'll put all our chips and money on black and it's going to hit. But the harsh reality of life is that that's often not the case. Watching the hope being taken out of another person, the destruction of that hope is the worst part of this job as a first responder in healthcare. So all of that dark stuff, right? How does that tie into mental health? Well, I mean, that was obviously very heavy. I wouldn't blame most of you if you didn't even make it through to this point, if you just had to turn it off because it was too much to listen to. Or if you just needed to take a break for a minute and step away because it was making you feel things that you haven't felt in a while or making you remember calls or patients or individuals you've encountered on your job that bringing back those memories, it's bringing back those smells, it's bringing back those sights, those tastes. The harsh reality is that this is the stuff that first responders deal with, that they answer the call to on a regular basis. And they are asked to shoulder the burden of these events, of these traumatic events, repetitively throughout their careers. Because it's the noble act that they have agreed to do by taking this job, by taking the oath of standing guard against the chaos in the world, of mitigating pain and suffering and being there for other people's worst days. They're inevitably and intrinsically going to encounter this darkness, this heavy stuff. Because we don't expect the public to. Most people don't even realize, couldn't even begin to comprehend the heaviness and the darkness that comes with being a first responder or being a nurse or a doctor or someone in healthcare, or in public safety, firefighter, police officer. There is a level of darkness in the society and in, in life that these individuals will never experience, but first responders do. And then they're asked to just punch back in the next day to get back to work to brush it off, to push forward, to press on, to saddle up. And that's not normal. There is nothing normal about that. There is nothing normal about seeing and experiencing these types of events and then just pushing on. You see, I used to think that just compartmentalizing and bottling it up was the answer. That's the one of the things that I, I mistakenly learned early in my career was just to compartmentalize it. I was incredibly fortunate early on in my career to have some fantastic mentorship from some very high-speed individuals who were those types of individuals that I wanted to take care of my family if they're ever sick. Clinically and operationally and tactically, they were top-notch. But unfortunately, when it came to mental health and wellness, they were very old school. So I was taught very early on that you just got to compartmentalize it. You just got to 
hash it up as part of the job and you just got to press on. You got to be tough. You got to bury it deep and push on, which I thought would work. And it did work for me for a little while, but it worked up until the point that it didn't, until I started experiencing all of those things that I talked about earlier, the short-tempered, the, the short fuse, the, the confusion, the inability to sleep, the nightmares, my relationships with the people in my life were deteriorating, felt like my world was collapsing all around me. And then that call happened, and then my world did fall apart. And it wasn't until I realized that I couldn't take that path anymore, just compartmentalizing it and just burying it, and that I needed help. So I got help. I got the help of a, a licensed therapist at the time and had a meeting with them. And all I did was talk about that call. I went through everything that happened, A to Z, and I had the most cathartic cleansing experience that I've had in a long time. I cried and fell apart. But then I felt peace, like I had processed, like I had come to some closure. You see, this is the key that we're missing as first responders in our culture, is the normalization, the destigmatization of the conversation surrounding mental health and our well-being. That because of the things we're asked to do and experience, we need to build in our culture and in our educational paradigm a robust and comprehensive mental health initiative. Now, that's a big undertaking, I, I understand. But as it stands now, our education as First responders is completely inadequate, in my opinion, when it comes to first responder mental health. Where I live in my EMS system statewide, we have only but a 30-minute required yearly con ed class on mental health. And it's the same video that it's been for the same five years. It never changes. It's the same story. You check the box and you move on. And then that's your education for the year for mental health. And then every department's different. Every department has their own initiatives. And thankfully, the current fire department I work at has a, has a fairly good uh, critical incident stress team and peer support group when it comes to mental health. And they're active and they put out good information. But at the same time, I still feel like as a culture, we can do better. Because informational bulletins and flyers, they only get us so far. They only get you to that point of recognizing that you should talk about it. And if you're experiencing some of these things, and you should probably think about getting help. But what we don't do is a lot of that back-end work. Where we're not only promoting the culture of normalizing the conversation around mental health, but also promoting sharing our stories when you're comfortable 
with trusted colleagues, of course. But normalizing being vulnerable and normalizing sharing these experiences and sharing these stories, because what I've found is that there's so many individuals out there so afraid of sharing their story and thinking that all of that trauma that they're holding on to, all of those feelings that they're holding on to, that they're not able to process because they're too afraid to be vulnerable. They're too afraid to open up to other people because they're afraid of the judgment. They're afraid of what their peers and their colleagues are going to say about them, what they're going to think about them. Not only that, but you have the fear of, will I have some sort of punitive measure taken upon me by administration if I tell them that I'm suicidal? Or if I tell them that I've been having these dark thoughts, are they going to say that I'm unfit for duty? Is this going to compromise some sort of the some sort of the benefits that I'm entitled to at my job? So they start to think about the bigger picture things of how this could affect their families and their livelihood if they opened up and shared their experience. And this shouldn't be the case. People should be able to openly and freely talk about these things. Because as a community, as first responders and healthcare professionals, the more we share our stories and the more we normalize this, the more other people realize that what they're feeling is normal. Because everybody thinks that their situation is unique and everybody thinks that their situation is different in that just because so-and-so has this experience, it doesn't mean that they can relate to me. We need to put that aside. That comes from the ego. That comes from our desire for some reason to want to identify with our trauma. And once we identify with our trauma, that's a dark, dark path to go down. We need to realize that our experiences are so very similar, that geographically they might have been different, or there might have been some details that were subtly different, but at the end of the day, the, the overall traumatic experiences are the same across the board, and the reactions that we're having to those experiences are the same across the board. And that when we realize that the people we look up to, or our administrators, or the guy to our left and the right, or the gal to our left and right, have suffered those same things or have experienced those same things or that they struggle with those same things. It helps us heal. It helps us move forward. It helps us gain the courage to share our own story. And the more we share these stories, the more it normalizes everything and everybody can just take a deep breath and relax and realize it's going to be okay. that this trauma and the suffering is not permanent. It doesn't have to be our way of life. That we shouldn't identify with our traumas. That's the path I've been going down. I've done a lot of soul searching, a lot of healing, and a lot of inner work. And I've been in a really good spot lately in my life. And I feel very blessed and very fortunate to have triumphed over my darkness so far when it comes to all of those cumulative experiences throughout my career. 
And I'm not going to sit here and share all of those stories because I don't want this to turn into war story hour. And the only reason I shared that one particular call was just to emphasize those, those events that occur in our careers that really solidify that moment where we recognize we are at that Rubicon moment. We are at that precipice of needing to realize we need to take care of ourselves, that we need to get the help that we need in whatever manner that is for you individually, whether that's therapy, psychiatrist, or more holistic approaches like I take nowadays with my mindfulness, meditation, breath work, ice baths, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, all of these things that create that peace in my mind, that bring that peace to my life, that create that flow state for me, that help me realize those bigger picture things in life, that life is a gift. Our time here is so very short and precious. And I'm so grateful for everything that I have. So now I like to take those bad experiences I've had and turn them into fuel to live the best life that I possibly can. Because while those individuals might have had a very misfortunate experience in life, I did the best that I could. I did the job the best to my ability but the outcome was out of my hands and that I am very grateful to still be here on this earth with the experience of waking up again, to experience all that life has to offer, to learn all the lessons that life has to give. And that's the mindset that I like to keep these days. So in closing, I want you to realize that normalizing vulnerability, being open, having these conversations, being a good steward in your organizations, in your department, speaking up and being vocal about mental health awareness, and not only the, the awareness, but the prevention and spreading those tools and the methods and the stories is only going to make us stronger, is only going to make us a better community in the end. So I hope this episode brought you some value. I hope that you enjoy this podcast so far. As always, if this did bring you value, don't forget to like, to share, to click subscribe, all of that fun jazz we do on podcasts. And until next time, stay mindful.